for the week of January 14th, 2016. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, making the clean energy transition fair and inclusive. We will talk to the director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program about what it means to diversify clean tech. Then, a look at Vinod Kosla's investment track record in energy, with GTM's editor-in-chief, Eric Wessoff. Finally, what will it take to get the massive gas leak under control in California? I'm Stephen Lacey, here to help guide you through these stories. Coming to you this week from our Boston offices, I'm actually using an emergency replacement microphone after my mic got damaged in transit. So you might notice a slight difference in quality, but we're all connected here and that's what matters. Catherine Hamilton is in Washington, D.C. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Just great. Jigger Shah is in New York City, as usual. How are you? I'm doing well. Just, you know, like embracing the cold weather that New York has uh, attracted recently. Yep. I was in New York on Monday. It got slightly colder. Then I came up to Boston and it got freezing. Our guest is usually in Baltimore, Maryland, but right now in a car somewhere outside of Flint, Michigan. Uh, Jacqueline Patterson is the director of NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. She brings deep expertise in research, policy, activism, working on women's rights, on racial justice, on HIV-AIDS issues, among many others. Since 2007, she's been working on environmental and climate issues at the NAACP, and now she joins us to talk about that work. Welcome, Jackie. How are you? You're in your car now, huh? I am at a rest stop <laughs> in New Stanton. That's where I am. <laughs> so, yes, thank you. It's good to be with you all. I think it makes sense to start with the most basic question. How did environmental justice become a movement and become defined? It seems to have started in the 80s as studies came out showing that the vast majority of toxic waste sites were being cited in communities of color around the U.S. Around that same time, true local community resistance started. What was the catalyst or the catalysts for this movement? So recognizing that I wasn't active back in those days, so I kind of know just from listening to the historians and the veterans of the movement that a number of catalysts, as you as you indicate, one of the ones that is that's probably the the most referenced one was this whole issue of in Warren County with this PCB contamination that happened where a group of, of citizens came up and and protested against this pollution of their communities with these PCBs. And of course, it was a primarily um, African-American community and a low-income community. And so that's so that and then um, the groups of people really recognizing that there's patterns of this type of injustice where um, low-income communities and, and communities of color um, were finding that they were disproportionately impacted by these various forms of pollution, whether it's from landfills or um, polluting um, factories or, or various things. And so people really came together in, in this environmental justice summit that happened in 1991. I think that was really the first time that people all came together from around the country to say we need to have an environmental justice agenda since we're all having this shared experience. We need to have policies in place to protect us from this differential impact that we're experiencing. So back in 2013, you guys actually came out with a really interesting report called Cold-Blooded um, that really highlighted a lot of these environmental justice uh, topics. You know, how did you guys, you know, come to sort of, you know, like coalesce all these thoughts into one report? Sure. Yeah. So when we first started working on 
when we first started to have this conversation around uh, the disproportionate impact of climate change on our communities, we also really also looked at the environmental, the, the, the tie between this kind of newly coined phrase around climate justice and its impacts, but also the fact that the drivers of climate change are also part of this traditional conversation around environmental justice. So these, so for example, coal-fired power plants it, just at looking at the EPA data around emissions and the census data around where and, and mapping out where these plants are, that they were disproportionately located in low-income communities and communities of color, African-American communities, Latino communities, and so forth. So we really wanted to do a report that looked at that intersection as this of these plants as being the larger larger per perpetrator of climate change, as well as um, contributing to asthma, to high rates of lung disease and other health conditions in these communities that are disproportionately host to them. And we found that 68% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a coal-fired power plant versus 56% of the general population. And, um, and we really juxtapose that against the fact that African-American children are three times more likely to enter into the hospital from asthma attacks and twice as likely to die from asthma, and that we're more likely to die from lung disease but less likely to smoke. And so as we went out and visited the various communities that were host to coal-fired power plants, you would hear story after story of asthma, of people having dragging their oxygen tanks to church, of people losing family members to, to lung disease who had never smoked a day in their lives, et cetera. So Jackie, when you all started looking at where the coal-fired power plants were, is that when your partnership with the Sierra Club, which has you know the big Beyond Coal campaign to shut down those plants, when did that sort of start forming and you created you know an additional set of allies in your fight for environmental justice? The, we all of our work from the national level is supporting the the work of our local of our local um, branches and chapters. And so the branches and chapters, when we did, when we started to work with them, we actually developed this to a accompaniment to the cold-blooded report called the Cold-Blooded Action Toolkit. And in that toolkit, we talked about how they how they might get involved at the local level. Depending on whether there's other folks in the community, they might be spearheading a campaign or they might partner with folks on a campaign or they might become a part of a coalition. And we work with them, um, each of them, in, on developing their cold-blooded campaign strategy. And as part of that, we looked at who was already working on these issues in the communities, who, cared, who shared a common ethos with them in terms of their their work and so a number of partners in different places arose in Chicago Little Village Environmental Justice Organization um, in, uh, in, in Memphis they work with the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy as well as the Sierra Club in so in different places they're working with various partners depending on who's already working on it where there's and also not only who's already working on it but who shares our ethos around it not just being myopically about shutting down coal-fired power plants it's also it, it there's no shutting down of a coal-fired power plant without a just transition plan that's in place for workers and um, loss of jobs loss of t um, tax revenue and and any um impacts to the to the grid so i guess what i'm trying to figure out is has this worked that report was pretty groundbreaking it made it very real for a lot of people resistance has obviously ramped up over the decades people have become more aware of the issue how much has the movement changed things we're talking about infrastructure here so it's not like you just rip it out overnight or completely change the way everything is cited but communities of color are dis still 
disproportionately impacted by toxic waste sites, by coal power plants, and um, how much can we say this movement has impacted the way these facilities are sited? Yeah, so so certainly when you have an entire uh, infrastructure, an entire set of interconnected systems that have been around for decades and and when there's these entrenched systemic inequities the the uh, the you know the daily i mean the 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 modern day um versions of redlining that absolutely still go on when you have kind of the systemic um and uh, uh incarceration in terms of mass incarcerate mass incarceration of entire populations when we have um, school systems that are, are are either shutting down schools and, and leaving kids without the, the proper education. Given that all of these things are completely connected, when we look at the, the sway that the energy companies hold over everything from our legislature to our courts to our media, there is no way that just because the NAACP came out with a report in 2013 and a number of people are starting to galvanize around this issue, that that is all going to change within a couple of years. So we're talking about a sea change that's going to take a, a very concerted, very um, power building um, and very intersectional approach to, to transformation that's going to take time. And Jackie, both of us, of course, serve on the board of Grid Alternatives Mid-Atlantic, and that gets us to the issue of solar. And a group like that, which is trying to make sure that not only is solar accessible to homes of of underserved families, but also that the workforce is drawn from those underserved communities. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you think about that and about, about that approach and also just about solar. So, yes, the reason I, I joined Grid Alternatives and am uh, also co- collaborating with groups like the Community Power Network and Meister's Consulting Group, all of whom have this focus on really connecting low-income cons- income consumers and 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 job seekers with the opportunities in the solar solar sector. We also have been starting to pull together these meetings called Bridging the Gap, Connecting Black Communities to the Green Economy for that same reason. So people recognize what opportunities are already there and then pushing for new opportunities. Also with uh, the Just Energy Policies campaign that we have been advancing that includes three energy pillars, which are um, renewable portfolio standards, energy efficiency resource standards, and then distributed generation of solar, we have included in there intentionally two piece, two other policies around local hire provisions and minority and women-owned business provisions because we need to be intentional about that. And so the partnerships with Grid Alternatives, Community Power Network, Maestro's Consulting Group, um, Bith Group Technologies, which is a black-owned um, solar company, have been really critical in moving that forward. Some of the things that we're trying to also work on to make it the, the this market, both in terms of jobs and business ownership, as well as um, low-income consumer uptake, are also... And, and really kind of community engagement around this are also looking at some of the provisions that make it or the prohibitions that make it difficult for formerly incarcerated persons to have opportunities in the um, in the um, in the solar installation space. Have you supported any economic analysis that shows the the impact on communities of clean energy development? I know that there are some groups. It's the National Black Chamber of Commerce is one that 
says that this is they work with utilities and other fossil fuel companies to claim that solar disproportionately helps the wealthy and right. disproportionately helps white communities and uh, is is bad for uh, Hispanic and African American communities. What is your response to that? And have you done any fact based uh, reporting to counter that? Yeah. So this is so this is actually everything that I just said before. You mentioned that is exactly w- part of what we're doing to counter that. A, we're because unfortunately some of the early adopters there has been uh, there has been a uh, racial and income disparity in terms of the early adopters. Um, in certain places. And so the extent to which folks can kind of, there's not as much in, as in the way of visible folks who, who have been able, who, you know, who have access, the opportunities is a, is a challenge. Um, so we're really pushing, we're working with, you know, some of the, the companies and having conversations with them now about how we can work together when we're doing these bridging the gap summits, for example, to make sure that they're there as part of our Black Green Pipeline career fair and connecting people th- with the job opportunities, the vendor opportunities, the entrepreneurial opportunities. We're also... Um, we also are very intentional about these Black Green Pipeline career fairs, both connected to the Bridging the Gap summits, as well as um, sending out um, a list, a listserv um, announcements about job opportunities that are available and entrepreneurship opportunities and grant opportunities that are available. So we're really being intentional. And then the, through the demonstration projects about being able to, to make it happen so that people are connecting with the opportunities and that then those connections are visible. We're also having um, discussions with the, we, I, we just had a couple of conversations with the Union of Concerned Scientists about potentially community commissioning report that actually looks at some of the because there's some some places where it's not that it's more of a visibility issue because there's you know in in, in California for example um, some uh, there's studies that show that there were there was a significant number of middle class families that were that have engaged around solar so we need to be able to uplift the studies that do exist find the gaps in the studies um, and see if we can uplift where there is this there is that uptake already happening but then also to be an active um, contributor to make sure it happens more (laughs) so uh i've got one question but two parts to it if i'm a a business owner in clean tech what should i be doing to diversify my workforce and to make sure that my business model is serving uh underserved communities and secondly if i'm a regulator thinking about these issues and to try to make this transition as speedy but as equitable as possible, what are some things I should be thinking about? For as a clean tech entity, um, definitely kind of going where people are to get the word out. When I when we did the South Carolina Energy Justice Roundtable, when we released the Just Energy Policies Report for South Carolina, and we did kind of a town hall meeting with that, there were these two sisters that talked about how they had this land that they've been really wanting to hold on to and their family is pushing them to sell the land so they can distribute the revenue within the family. And they said, and when they heard what we had to say at the Energy Justice Roundtable, they're like, this is exactly what we can do with this land. We can do solar on this land, and it, actually, it, it could actually be a solar garden for our community. Like, they were completely on fire. But literally, if they hadn't come to that Energy Justice Town Hall meeting, it had never even occurred to them in any way before that. So we need to think about, like, where are places where people are already 
gathering that the clean tech groups can come to and make sure that people understand where the opportunities are. And with that, um, when we talk about the um, solar policies, also let's think about the local hire provisions and the minority and women-owned business provisions. And let's add some of that, uh, you know, lobbying weight that they use behind those other policies to some of those other policies that actually really mean something to communities as well. And then in terms of the regulators, most we developed this document called... Um, engaging with the uh, Public Utilities Commission and Public Service Commission. In that document, we talked about why engaging with in, um, utilities, Public Utilities Commissions and Public Service Commissions is part of a, an NAACP civil rights agenda. So we start off there because most people don't even, you know, a common person doesn't even know that these things exist, much less what they do, much less that there's any opportunity to engage with them at all. So I think they need to develop a campaign to actually help people to understand who they are, what they do, and actually, you know, not just kind of sit there and say, well, we're here, our meetings are open, people can come if they want, they need to lean in as well. Jacqueline Patterson is the director of NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. She's a woman on the move. She joined us from her car outside Flint, Michigan. Thank you so much. Super. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We turn now to our editor-in-chief, Eric Wessoff, who's joining us from the hills surrounding Silicon Valley. Eric wrote and researched a really fantastic piece for our premium service, GTM Squared, about Vinod Kosla's record in clean tech investing. Eric has been covering Kosla's strategy probably better and more comprehensively than anyone else since 2007. And in this piece, he breaks down virtually every one of Kosla's bets on biofuels, on storage, solar, efficiency, some other technologies, materials. So let's talk about them. Eric, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on, Stephen. What drove you to look into Kosla's record now? Well, most venture capital funds are 10-year vehicles. The, the life of the fund is about 10 years. And so um, it's been about 10 years since Vinod started investing in clean tech, both from his time at KP and in his own firm at, at Kosla Ventures. And so it seemed like a good time to check in and see how his 63 or 70 uh, clean tech investments have fared in the last decade. Let's talk about biofuels first. This was, as you say, his first love. Kosla said, if you're not afraid of failure, it frees you up to succeed. And you wrote, in the case of biofuels, Kosla was extremely unafraid of failure. Not a very good track record in biofuels. What did you find? Well, if you're making, if you had a billion dollars of your own and other people's money uh, and you wanted to invest it, um, you'd have to have a thesis on which to invest it. And his thesis simply was um, oil is going to be $200 a barrel in 2015 and that the oil companies had not made sufficient efforts to liberate the uh, technology of biofuels. He also thought that biofuels would, the technology of biofuels would um, be innovating at a pace faster than say something like batteries. And so that was, he, he saw an enormous amount of opportunity there. And he ended up investing probably about $800 million of his own funds money and billions of, uh, in, 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 in co cooperation with others in about 20 biofuel companies across the board from ethanol to biobutanol to a, a number of other feedstocks, um, genetically modified organisms and catalysts. And, uh, I think it's safe to say that 
there were no venture capital returns in those 20 companies. Although a few companies went public and may have created some wealth, uh, it's hard to say that they created any value or long-lasting changes in the market. Hey, Jigger, Eric cites Robert Rapier, who has been pretty critical of Kosla's biofuels efforts. And he, he said that Kosla didn't appreciate that he isn't smarter than the people in the oil industry. Do you agree with that assessment, that there's some hubris here? It's worse than hubris. I mean, look, I, I mean, I think Vino Kosla, you know, has other challenges. Um, but in the biofuel space, his record is literally O for whatever. And, you know, and it, it's worse than that because some of his investments fundamentally violate laws of thermodynamics. I mean, this is something that a college professor could have solved for him. I mean, both Jivo and Kior were atrocious investments. And when you look at what happened with Kior in the state of Mississippi, I mean, he fleeced the citizens of Mississippi for $100 million plus, and now they're going after him with a lawsuit. I mean, I just, you know, I, I'm a big fan of trying to figure out how to do the impossible. I love that Silicon Valley tries to do that. But you can't violate basic laws of science. Well, uh, Jigger, I, I, Vinod does, certainly doesn't need me to uh, defend him, but he's, he's not looking to make money, I, I imagine. I think he has, all, he has more money than Crocious, so, so he doesn't need to make money. He's, he's, he, he's, I think he has a net worth of $1.7 billion. So he's looking for that black swan, and he has to make— yeah, But a black swan doesn't violate science. A black swan like opens up new science, maybe— but when you look at Kior, for instance, there, like when you look back on it, there's actually no chance for Kior to have ever worked, right? And so why even try? Now, like Lancetech has some interesting, you know, properties, and at the Carbon War Room, I think that's the only one that we sort of liked. But, but you know, I just think that's it's just like so bad. I mean, it's I, I just it makes my skin crawl because because you know he really <laughs> destroyed you know, investing in biofuels for everyone because he just couldn't get the science right. So let's move into some of his other predictions and bets. You mentioned that he thought lithium-ion was a bad bet. He said lithium-ion batteries are toys that can't be deployed at scale. He thought biofuels would scale much faster than battery technologies and more specifically lithium-ion, and he was proved wrong. The same thing in solar. He thought that uh, crystalline silicon solar was going to fundamentally need to be transformed, and looks like he was wrong about that. Conventional solar has continued to dominate. So it sounds like uh, beyond just biofuels themselves, he's, he's had a couple other hiccups in his investment thesis. Well, his premise that lithium-ion is a volatile situation is correct. And, and what he's done is he put, he's put bets on a number of other squares on the periodic table, in, in various other ions and other materials to try to have non-exploding batteries. Um, and yet the market has answered with 200 megawatts in the United States of mostly lithium-ion batteries being deployed in 2015. And so the market and the conservative people in that market have spoken, and lithium-ion has gotten the thumbs up. Um, Jigger, Catherine, you, Catherine certainly, uh, your storage experts, do you think that lithium-ion is just a stepping stone to this next uh, chemistry that that Vinod might be betting on. 
Well, I mean, it might be. I I don't think anything is static right now. I certainly think that the Department of Energy has been funding this Jay Caesar program um, in Chicago, which is sort of beyond lithium ion, and they're looking at it from the research standpoint with universities and companies. And so, I don't think it's wrong to look at other, you know, other types of technology. I think the way the industry is evolving is that the companies that are smart about this are going to be able to drop in other chemistries. Um, you know, into their processes, you know, whether or not they're lithium ion. Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, just to back up for a second and maybe talk a little bit broadly, uh, more broadly about close ventures. Like, so I do think that the, the work that Sundia had just doing for Vinod on, um, off grid investments is really good. Um, Andrew Chung and I have talked about this a lot, you know, who's been with Vinod for a while. And, you know, on this point, I would say that this is where the philosophical difference comes in that I have with Vinod, which is that, you know, the reason lithium ion was chosen, and it's precisely why Elon Musk says that he chose it, was because it has a track record, right? Lithium ion has been used for many, many years, and it's a devil we know, where a lot of these other chemistries are devils we don't know, right? So, you know, we sort of claim that they have all these functions in Don, you know, Sadaway's lab at MIT, but when you actually look at the track record, it's very thin, and so it's hard to make a 10-year or 20-year investment into a technology that doesn't have 10 years of field data. Um, and lithium ion has that field data. And this is, this is always the argument that I've had with Vinod and with other people, which is that, you know, that in the project finance space, uh, new technology is not your friend. So I guess this brings us, we're, we're pretty critical of Vinod right now. But as you said, Eric, he's trying to find this black swan. So I don't know that I'm convinced that he ruined biofuels for everyone. I think there are a lot of market forces out there that have made biofuels just a terrible bet for a lot of reasons. But um, should we really be faulting him this much if the guy's trying to find a black swan? I mean, he's he's pumping a lot of money and making bets that others just simply wouldn't. And we sit here and sometimes are critical of venture investors that aren't making bets beyond the very simple, safe ones. So on balance... How do you feel about what he's done, Eric? So he's he is the man, one of the men in the arena, and uh, you can't fault him for making these taking these outrageous risks. You can't fault him for trying to violate uh, the laws of physics, as as as, as Jigger talked about. I w- let me give an example. Because he was so uh, disaffected by lithium, he said, "Well, let's reinvent the battery." And and I don't know that much about the company. It's QuantumScape, but. New, they wanted to ask new questions and not assume everything that had been assumed in the battery world. And so they started talking about thin film batteries, ver- new technologies, new chemistries, new materials. And they ha- had an enormous hiring surge. And, and they went full bore trying to scale up a untested technology. If this sounds familiar to, say, how thin film solar went half a dozen years ago, it, 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 there is a, a parallel. Anyway, after all this hiring and after all this scale-up at QuantumScape, it turned out they could not scale up their existing materials, and they had, to, they had a reduction in force, and they had to really go back to the drawing board in the words of some former employees that I was able to talk to. And so it's brave and noble that he wanted to create an entire new battery chemistry, and I guess there's some bravery and nobility in uh, some failure at the moment at that particular No, no, no look, I, I, I completely agree with you on his desire to, you know, look for black swans. Um, You know, I think that on the battery side, but also on the geothermal side with Alterac, for instance. And so so I I am not critical of his desire to, you know, change the world. I think that's wonderful. 
what I'm critical of is when you have that much money, you shouldn't make so many mistakes in biofuels that are so fundamental. And that's what Robert Rapier really is going after him on is the biofuel stuff, not on batteries and on, you know, Alterock and some of the other things. And also even on, you know, thin foam solar, I think Stion is doing okay. Um, and so he's got, you know, some, you know, real successes there. But I, but I do think that, you know, on biofuels, I mean, he does deserve all the criticism he receives. And the reason it matters is because he's used so much public money. Well, this piece was so good. Eric really did a great job of laying out all the investments that uh, might be hidden. You know, we, we often hear about many of the successes, but the failures are often buried. Eric uncovered those, and that is up on GTM Squared. It's available for Squared subscribers, worth a read. Um, you can go to greentechmedia.com slash squared to check it out. And if you're not a subscriber, it is worth the price of admission. Eric, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you. I hope I passed the audition, and I hope I can get back here within the next couple of years. <laughs> anytime. Anytime, <laughs> thank you, Eric. Digger Catherine. On to our last topic. So the Rams football team leaked out of St. Louis and into Los Angeles to relocate this week. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles area is experiencing a leak of its own. An underground facility has been spewing natural gas since October, forcing thousands of people from their homes Okay, that was a pretty bad joke. And no one is laughing in northwestern Los Angeles, where this gas leak is expected to continue perhaps into March. Uh, it's 11 weeks in the making already. In, it now represents 2% of yearly methane emissions in the U.S. and is expected to cost Southern California gas billions in damages. Now experts are worried about the health risk of airborne chemicals in the area. The leak is coming from a ruptured well, so far, the emissions spewed have been equivalent to burning 800 million gallons of gasoline. Catherine, uh, do you think we should put this on par with the BP spill from 2010? Is this as bad? Yeah, I mean, it could be worse because of the health impacts to humans. So two schools have been closed. Thousands of kids had to be relocated um, because of health impacts. And they don't really know what all the, health, the full health impacts are going to be. But lots and lots of folks have had to be relocated. Um, it's a huge issue, especially because natural gas provides half the electricity in the state, and it's used everywhere on the end, both on the end use and on generation. So it's used for, you know, certainly in homes, for on stoves and hot water heaters and furnaces and dryers, just like I use gas in my home. Um, and but then also in factories and refineries and wastewater treatment. So it's it's a huge amount of use that you can't just shut off the gas. It's not something you can just stop using there. Um, um, and I, I think it's worse. Yeah, and the fix is really difficult. They have to go drill down way underneath the earth to f to drill a relief well, and they basically have to pinpoint it perfectly. So there's no guarantee that when they start drilling down, they're going to hit where they need to to be able to um, drill that relief well. So that's that could take months to do, for all we know. I mean, they could do it right the first time, or they have to do it over and over again. We just don't know at this point. Well, it is going to take months, right? It's been 11 weeks, and they're now yeah. projecting end of February, end of March. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, the thing that just pisses me off more than anything about this stuff is how much overregulation we have in the solar industry with shutoff valves and everything else. This field does not have a shutoff valve. They're like, well, it's, it was too small to have a shutoff valve, so we just didn't put one in. I mean, it's just maddening to me how much crap these guys get away with. And, you know, everyone else has to, like, you know, abide by all these, like, rules around safety, et cetera. But, 
you know, for these guys, it's like, oh, trust us. It's never going to happen. I mean, it's like, you know, PG&E had two major explosions up, up in their territory. You know, it's just the blind leading the blind over there. Well, and they say, you know, oh, this is an aberration. This is not usual. Well, how do they know that? I mean, it's not like they're running around with technologies, which are actually available to go to monitor pipelines for deterioration before you reach this stage. But there is a lot of natural gas storage out there in this country. And how do we know that there aren't similar situations that are percolating up that we can't even see? Yeah, it took so them on, weeks to find. Yeah, so on that, so the Home Energy Efficiency Team is a Cambridge based nonprofit that's been talking about exactly this and shedding light on leaky natural gas infrastructure for years. They just last week sent um, a whole bunch of people to um, to L.A. to measure uh, the pollution around, you know, around Porter Ranch. And I mean, the, the visuals have been, you know, just astounding. And, and it really is um, it really is a big problem. I mean, and it's it, it what's worse about this is that you know, EDF and, and EPA came out with this horrible report around methane leakage where, remember, we talked about how the article was, the, the title was basically miswritten on purpose by the EPA. And now, like all the reviewers, for instance, of that report are now suing the EPA because they're saying, look, you misrepresented our results. Um, methane leakage is a real problem and it can absolutely make natural gas worse than coal from a climate perspective. Let's talk about the health risk. California officials have been doing a lot of measurements. They said there's no acute risk. Um, they have measured benzene and xylene and other chemicals. But a bunch of independent scientists in the press talking to, like, the Los Angeles Times, Inside Climate News, other outlets, said that there are definitely worries about long-term health impacts that just aren't factored into the current government analysis when they just look at acute impacts. So uh, going back to your original point, Catherine, I mean, there are some potential issues here that just aren't being measured depending on how long this leak actually lasts. Yeah, so there's the issue of, like, what are we going to do right now to stop the bleeding? And the two senators from California have sent, have you know, uh, Senator Boxer and Senator Feinstein have sent a letter to the U.S. EPA, Department of Transportation and Justice Department, to say, all right, can can you guys do anything to help us? How can the federal government just come in and try immediately to try to help stop this issue? But then on a longer term, think about how we can get more regulation that would actually allow natural gas companies to to use their resource more efficiently. If you plug up the leaks, it's going to you're going to get to use more gas and sell more of it um, in a way. It, so so methane um, regulation is going to be so important in this situation and, and, you know, for longer term. So what's the, the, why is this story not as prominent as the Macondo well leak in 2010? You know, that, that BP story was just so massive. And yet we're talking about a, a leak that can't be stopped for at least a couple of months. We're talking about acute human health impacts in communities surrounding the leak is it just because it's harder to see that when people aren't covering it as much? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that oil sort of, you know, lends itself to these extraordinary visuals, right, of birds being covered in black, yucky stuff, et cetera, where, where the visuals just aren't the same here. And it's just sad because I do think we need the same level of response that Macondo received, you know, from you know, the Secretary of Energy and, and all the right people in, in in Washington. And I'm sure that they're involved, but 
But the way in which they've spun this news story has made it really into a local story when this really is a nationwide story. I mean, I also think that they're really afraid of how this blends with the rest of their, um, you know, conversation around uh, natural gas being a bridge fuel. About a $2 billion or maybe even a $3 billion accident thus far. If this goes until March, God knows where that number will go. We'll follow this for you and we'll perhaps provide an update if anything major changes. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, what do you got this week? I was going to try to revisit this. Um, I was hoping you and I could revisit with Jigger the Nevada solar story. Oh, well, let's combine it because that's what I was going to talk about. So okay. here we go. Yay. So, th- yeah, the, the Nevada PUC last night upheld their earlier decision that they wanted to cut net metering rates over four years down to wholesale rates and increase uh, monthly network charges. Catherine, were you surprised by this? I was actually pretty surprised. I thought that th- basically what they're saying is that these cuts apply to everyone, not just new solar customers. Jigger, I know you had some thoughts on whether or not these are so- solar customers over the net metering cap or everyone. I still haven't been able to figure that no, out. No, I've gotten confirmation that it's everyone. You have. It's everyone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I knew, I mean, I had talked to some solar companies before the decision, and they all pretty much thought the decision would come down the way it was. Um, I think there is there's some path for appealing an administrative appeals process. I'm sure there are going to be lot, some lawsuits. This whole issue of not grandfathering people is just unbelievable because the state incentivized all of these people to purchase and to and to enter into long term contracts for solar power. So there are 17,000 customers who are incentivized to do this and who are now told, sorry, you're out of luck. So, I mean, I've done business in Nevada for a long time. Um, And, you know, so I, you know, Anne-Marie Cuneo, who's the director of regulatory operations at the state of Nevada Public Utilities Commission. I mean, she was sort of like, you know, giggly about it. She was sort of like, look, um, you know, we basically did this in exactly the right way to screw you guys. So the way that the dynamic works in Nevada is the Public Service Commission is in the pocket of uh, the utility and, and the solar companies just have never really done a good job of getting good relationships there. Um, there's a huge political challenge with the Southern Nevada and Northern Nevada sort of rate politics, which is what this was a part of. The way the solar industry got around this in the past was they got all of these th- things done through the legislature. And the legislature basically mandated the Public Service Commission, or Public Utilities Commission, actually do the right thing here. What these guys did this time around was wait for the legislature to go out of session um, which is what they've done. And in Nevada, they only meet once every two years. We're stuck with this for two years, and then the legislature will come back and fix this. But they're going to fix it two years from now. It was literally diabolical, the way in which they did this. And, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrendous. It's just such bad public policy. And I'm not saying that as a, necessarily a defender of the solar industry. It's just damaging to the citizens of Nevada, the people who have signed those contracts under a rate and are now screwed financially, potentially yeah, many of them. And it's just such awful public policy. I'm scratching my head here and I cannot figure it out. Well, I mean, like, there's nothing to figure out. I mean, Nevada Energy has is publicly on the record in saying that they hate all forms of distributed generation, including co-generation and CHP, right? So it's not 
like this is just a solar thing. Um, and ultimately, they rule the state with an iron fist. Um, Harry Reid basically, you know, now that he's retiring, has lost a lot of power, so he couldn't do this. You know, the other interesting thing that people may not know is, you know the whole Bundy episode um, in, in uh, Nevada with um, the, the Bureau of Land Management? Yeah, this is a group of folks who are trying to force the government to give up lands to uh, private citizens. So, you know, that whole deal was about solar. Really? Yeah. Wait, so, what? So, so the Bureau of Land Management knew that those guys were doing things illegally for the last 100 years, but didn't care because the federal government owns like 71% of the land in Nevada. Um, but, you know, ENN, like, you know, filed a submission to want to use that land to build a solar, hop, solar thermal facility there. And that's why BLM started um, saying, well, we need to actually, like, you know, exercise our rights here because – um, we need to give this land to somebody who wants to put a solar thermal facility on there. It, in the end, the solar thermal facility never made made sense. So the BLM has actually stopped their enforcement action against the Bundys because, you know, it was a big problem anyway. But but yeah, I mean, Nevada has all these weird politics, and you know, like I'll renew my like objections with Task. I mean, Task just didn't understand the politics. They should have known this was coming. They should have gotten this done through the legislature before. They went out of session and forgot to do it. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we basically just, you know, screwed this up. Catherine, does this play into national politics in any way? Both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have weighed in on this. Clinton was a little bit more reserved but said she didn't like the retroactive cuts or the, the lack of grandfathering. Bernie Sanders called it basically idiotic. Um, yeah. Does this become a national political issue or become within Nevada a major political issue in upcoming elections? Oh, okay. Those are two separate issues. Right, right, right. I don't think it becomes national because Nevada, as Jigger said, it's a state with, I mean, every single state has hinky politics. That's just the way it works. Um, I do think it's going to be an issue for the governor. So I, the governor's raised taxes also, but this does not help. This is a lot of jobs. It's a lot of homeowners. Um, you know, no matter how much power Envy Energy has, they are not the only voters in the state. So I think, um, you know, it is going to impact the state politics. And it was this, this perfect storm of pushing things through, giving the PUC too much power, which was then controlled by the utility and the governor. I mean, my understanding is that his closest advisor is was Envy Energy's lobbyist. And so that's, you know, having him tied to that wasn't helpful either. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure, Jigger, there were issues with the solar community. But just having talked to some of these companies, they really did try. And it was very hard to make anything happen there given the politics yeah no i'm i'm not disagreeing i think they did try and the politics are crushing at the public utilities commission but they should have done this at the legislature i mean they knew that they were going to lose at the public utilities commission well and the, the, that got pushed through really really quickly everything happened so fast out there so yeah. they really didn't give it time to get through the system as it should have gone yeah and i thought that they just got screwed because the legislature basically punted over to the puc so Separate from the solar industry's lobbying, I think it was just a process issue that the PUC got the authority to work on net metering issues. Jigger, you got the last word. Tell us something we don't know. <laughs> so mine is about that letter that um, a bunch of us submitted um, to the California Resources Board around VW and the sanctions that the California Resources Board should should apply to VW. So we recently got um, some information back from them you know, that indicates that they, they're thinking about it. So they basically 
have gone back and now said that they um, that they um, are not going to look at a recall as the right um, strategy to solve this problem, and that they're now uh, going to really make this an enforcement issue, which allows them to use electric vehicles as one of the ways for them to um, you know push the German automaker to to make amends. And so I think we're making good progress here, which is great. I'm not quite sure that the U.S. EPA um, is going to do the same thing. They don't have really that level of broad authority, but I think the California Resources Board is going to stick it to them. And are they willing to consider that because there are a lot of big names signed on? No, I don't think it's about the names. I think that they honestly just didn't think about the idea before, you know, they got the suggestion from, you know, the outside. Um, And now that they've gotten the suggestion from outside, they're like, huh, that does make a lot of sense because fundamentally the science behind diesel doesn't really make it possible to cost effectively uh, bring these cars into compliance. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do a recall because what is VW going to do to fix it? Yeah. And they're going to need something for their fleet because they're just rolling out SUVs now. Right. I agree. So, so I think that's good. You know, I think it's, um, it was a really, you know, great, uh, you know, like sort of, method of showing people that in fact you know you just have to get involved right i mean this is this isn't really about your name or whatever else it's about getting good ideas and you know sharing them with public officials you know you'd think that they would have thought of it on their own but they don't you know they actually need the public to you know give them ideas that's the show for the week fun one boy we covered a lot of ground if you don't already, make sure to subscribe to this show through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or just grab our RSS feed and drop it into the podcatcher of your choice. Send us an email with gossip, with gripes, or just send a question. We can be reached at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear from our listeners. And you can find a few links to things we discussed on this show in our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Catherine, have a good end of your week and weekend. Thanks, you too. Jigger, you do the same. I will. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.